Hey friends, thanks for joining me on another episode of the Bible in Life podcast, and thanks so much for being a part of the Bible in Life family. If you're new, welcome. I'm so glad to be with you on this episode. My heart here on the Bible in Life is simply to help you learn and live the Bible, because I believe the Bible is a a precious gift from God, meant to shape and transform our lives. And sadly, so many Christians don't know it. They don't know it because they haven't read it. They don't know it because they haven't had anyone to help them learn it. And I want to fill that that void by helping you learn the Bible and be able to live the Bible in its really original context. And so that's my heart here on the show. And I'm so grateful to each and every one of you for being a part of it and for tuning in to listen to this episode. It's crazy to me, but we are only a few weeks away from Christmas itself, so we're officially into the Christmas season. I know my house is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I'm assuming a lot of your houses are as well. And one of my uh, favorite family traditions is something we've been doing for years. We, as a family, go up about an hour outside of Boise, up into the hills, and We gather with some friends up in the mountains and we cut down Christmas trees and bring them home and set them up in our house. And oftentimes there's snow, we have a little campfire, we have Christmas goodies and Christmas treats up there and just make kind of a day out of it. And this year we did that just a week and a half ago and my kids are now grown, but they came along with their spouses and their babies and really just a great time of Uh, being together as a family and uh, following a family tradition that's been a part of our family for a long time. So I'm assuming you've got some fun holiday traditions, some great Christmas traditions that you enjoy. And uh, here we are in the Christmas season. And so I thought it would be uh, great here over the next few weeks on the podcast just to take a little bit of time and look at the Christmas story. And I wanted to do that because of this question. What do you know about the Christmas story? And maybe maybe you know more than I'm assuming. I could be totally wrong. I don't know. But my experience has been that most of us know these kinds of things about the Christmas story. We know that there is Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. We know that there's a hay and a barn and that the cattle are lowing. We know that there's some shepherds and some angels, and they're all gathered around this barn, presumably. We, we know that Mary and Joseph traveled from Nazareth down to a t- little town of Bethlehem, and they did that presumably by themselves, and they arrived late at night, and they got there, and they went to the local hotel, and uh, it was full, there was no vacancy, and there was a nasty, mean innkeeper. Uh, We know that they ended up in this barn, maybe even a cave, and that's where they, where little baby Jesus was born that very night. Um, And yet what's interesting about all of that is almost all those details are never mentioned in the biblical text. So what do we really know about the Christmas story? Like, what's fascinating is we have all these traditional details that show up in our popular kind of sentimental understanding of the Christmas story. And we pay attention to those details and at the same time ignore the actual details of the Christmas story itself as told by the biblical writers. And so what I thought we would do over the next few weeks is we would just take a little bit of time and we would walk through the most well-known, most popular um, 
Christmas story, where most of our understanding of the Christmas story comes from, that is Luke chapter 2, and we would just pay attention to the details of the text. What does the text actually tell us about the Christmas story, and what does that mean for us, and how does that speak to us today? And so we're going to be, over the next few episodes of the podcast, just walking down through Luke chapter 2 and looking at the details, and I don't totally know exactly how it's all going to play out and how far we'll get in each episode. I'll just kind of walk down to the text and and uh, give us some details and help us understand the text with maybe some real solid historical details so we can actually hear what the Christmas story is saying. All right? Sounds good? I hope that is something that might be encouraging, helpful to you to actually pay attention to the details of the Christmas story. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the familiar opening line of the Christmas story. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. And that opening line of this well-known version of the Christmas story sets this story in a firm historical framework, and that's terribly important for us. This isn't like a story that's you know ripped out of history and can just be stuck anywhere. It's in a firm historical framework where uh, Augustus is Caesar, and there's a census of all the inhabited earth. Now, we need to make sure we understand what these words mean and what this historical framework is all about. And so before we even look at the specifics of that text, let's zoom out and let's locate ourselves on the map of history, all right? Where are we at in the time period of history? Obviously, geographically, we're in Israel, okay? So we got that geographically, but what's going on historically? And I want to go way back and just do a real quick, like real quick race through of the last few hundred years of Israel's history so we know where we're at and maybe we can feel these words a little bit more like uh, they felt to Mary and to Joseph and even to Elizabeth and Zachariah from Luke chapter 1 and to maybe the shepherds that we'll meet later in this story, all right? So let's just zoom way out, locate ourselves uh, on the map of history, all right? So if if you uh, read through the whole Bible, at the end of the Old Testament, or shortly before the end of the Old Testament, uh, Israel, because of their violation of their covenant with God and their unfaithfulness to God, uh, Israel has experienced the curses of that covenant, right? The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, promised blessings for keeping the covenant and curses for breaking the covenant. And the story of the Old Testament tells how Israel routinely and regularly broke the covenant, and God in his mercy and his patience kept sending them prophets to try to uh, remind them of the covenant and restore their loyalty to him. And they had maybe occasional periods where their loyalty was restored. But overall, they, they broke God, their covenant with God. And thus, by the end of the Old Testament, they have experienced the ultimate curse of the covenant. And that is they've been exiled from their land. They've been taken captive into Babylon. Israel was destroyed, and so they go into Babylonian captivity. Now, God, through his prophets, reminded them that that wasn't the end of the story, that God was going to still do his great work through them, and he was going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, and so God was going to bring them back, and that there would be someday a great Davidic king that would restore the kingdom 
uh, of God and, and carry on God's work. And, and so they had this kind of poetic and prophetic hope that, that, that anchored them even in the midst of their Babylonian captivity. And sure enough, after about 70 or so years, uh, Persia defeated Babylon as the world superpower. Persia had a different foreign policy, and eventually Cyrus issued a decree, and he allowed the Jews, as well as other captive peoples, return to their homeland. And so a great number of Jews left Babylon and the surrounding environs and returned to Jerusalem and returned to Israel. And now they were under Persian occupation and Persian rule and they were able to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. Well, in the course of time, uh, a new power arose, this power from the west, and sped quickly through the east and conquered the, the Persian world, and that new power was Greece and Alexander the Great. And Alexander uh, traveled through very quickly, defeating Persia and defeating all these, these regions and conquered the regions. And as he went, he brought Greek culture with him. And so now, uh, very quickly, Greek culture became the dominant culture of the Mediterranean world. Well, in the course of time for Israel, as we zero in on this little strip of land where the story is going to happen in Luke chapter 2, in the course of time, uh, Alexander dies, his, his kingdom is divided up amongst his generals, and for the sake of Israel, that really meant that you had the, the Ptolemies ruling down in the south in Egypt, and you had the Seleucids ruling up in the north in Syria, and you had Israel in between being kicked back and forth like a soccer ball as the Ptolemies and the Seleucids vied for control of that land for a variety of reasons, all sorts of tumult, all sorts of hostility, all sorts of warfare, all sorts of oppression. Not a pleasant time. This is, um, you know... 300 BC down into the 100s BC. So during this time period before Jesus, Israel is just, uh, it's a mess. And they've returned to their homeland. And in some sense, that means the the prophetic hope has been, is being fulfilled. And yet, and yet the the world isn't made right, right? There's no great Davidic king on the throne. There's there's warfare and bloodshed, and there is not peace, and the golden era that they were hoping for has not arrived, and the, the temple has been rebuilt, yes, but it, it pales in comparison to its former, former glory, and God's Shekinah glory hasn't returned to the temple, and in the midst of all of this, you, you put yourselves in the sandals of the Jews living in that time period, and that nagging question of, when is God going to act? When is God going to come and deliver his people? When is God going to fulfill his promises? And this is the state of being, and this is the state of mind of Jews, really in the centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus and in the century after the birth of Jesus. There is this longing for God to act and longing for the final chapter in their story to be written. And that that longing is punctuated by oppression and hostility, awful kind of hostility. I mean, 
When we talk about the Seleucids and they eventually gained control of Israel, the Seleucids ruling up in Syria, and you have a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's the ruler of the Seleucids, and Epiphanes means God manifest, and that's how he promoted himself, and now he's ruling over Israel, and he came and he defiled the temple, right, and the, the Seleucids offered, you know, a pig on the, the uh altar in Jerusalem as a way of trying to obliterate uh, Jewish religion and say, we're, we're done with you. We're going to just basically make you become a part of us. And they defile the temple and, and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. I mean, he, he outlawed the marks of Jewish religion, circumcision and Sabbath keeping and some of these things. And and uh, on the penalty of death, and yet the Jews continue to circumcise their baby boys. And and in the midst of all of this, you have the average Jew just wondering, when in the world is God going to act? All right, now, that gives way eventually to the Romans, this, this great power that has been arising in the West and slowly moving east. And um, Julius Caesar, and he's eventually assassinated on March 15th in 44 BC. Well, his adopted son, his grandnephew, uh, Gaius Octavius, was adopted by him as his son. And in his will, he was given control of the, the, the Republic and uh, that fellow Octavian, as we know from history, uh, eventually there led to a civil war between Octavian and Mark Antony, and Mark Antony aligned himself with Cleopatra, and eventually Octavian defeated the forces of Mark Antony. Mark Antony and Cleopatra cle uh, committed suicide, and peace was brought to the realm, and uh, by this point now, Rome is the dominant world power, and they are ruling over this whole region. And Octavian now has solidified uh, the Republic and has made it an empire. And in 27 BC, the Roman Senate bestows upon Octavian the title Augustus. Augustus. Caesar Augustus. And that's who we meet here in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, is Caesar Augustus, Octavian, uh, emperor of the Roman world, and brilliant administrator, brought peace to the Mediterranean like there hadn't been for really ever before, um, and yet also a, a, you know, kind of a brutal controlling military ruler. And so here is the Mediterranean world, and here is this little strip of land that has been kicked back and forth like a soccer ball for hundreds of years and has known nothing but foreign oppression, and now they are under Roman occupation and Roman rule and uh, Roman governance. Um, and, and now, here in Luke chapter 1, um, Caesar issues a decree that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. The, the phrase inhabited earth refers to uh, just really the Roman Empire, but it tells you how the Romans looked at it. We are the civilized world. We're the ones that are in charge of the world. And a census was basically a tax counting census. The whole point of a census was to count the inhabitants to see who was all there for the purpose of taxation. And um, Augustus had an emperor-wide policy uh, upon his solidifying the, the, the republic into an empire and putting down revolt and all that. He had an emperor-wide policy of saying, let's count the peoples. And so over the course of his imperial reign, he, he uh, 
took a census to kind of measure and count the peoples of his empire. That's what Luke chapter 2 is talking about. That's the historical framework we're in. So Caesar Augustus is in some ways the first Roman Empire. Um, some would put that with Julius Caesar, but the, the empire was really a republic under Julius Caesar, and Caesar Augustus is the one who made it an empire. He's the emperor, and he has given this title Augustus, venerated one, magnificent one. That's who he is. It's his, these are his two titles. Caesar is his ruling title. Uh, Augustus is this honorific title bestowed upon him by the Roman Senate um, for being the great one who has brought peace and safety and who has saved the realm and saved the empire, Caesar Augustus, peace bringer and savior to the Mediterranean world. Now, we also know from our Christmas carols that there is another fella involved in this whole story, Herod, Herod the Great. He's actually mentioned in Luke chapter 1. We know him from our Christmas stories that he's the one that sends in troops to kill all the babies in Bethlehem and so we know Herod's involved in that story as well. So what's Herod's role in relationship to Augustus? Well, Herod is a little bit Jewish, and he is basically the client king who's ruling over Israel, um, Judea, and this eastern part of the Mediterranean on behalf of Caesar Augustus. So he is the client king, who, Herod, who Caesar has put in charge of this particular part of Augustus's empire, and he's ruling on his behalf. And so that's who we meet him. That also tells us, knowing that Herod's involved, is that this story in Luke chapter 2 had to have occurred before 4 BC because Herod died in 4 BC. So this story occurs sometime, maybe 5 BC, maybe 6 BC, somewhere in there uh, before Herod dies when he is in charge of Judea and Israel and this strip of land here on behalf of Caesar Augustus. All right, so that's the part of history we're in. And what is being described here, as I said, is a taxation census for the purpose of counting the people of the empire uh, that Caesar Augustus issued a decree for. Now, if you keep reading... In Luke chapter 2, it says, This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone uh, went to his own town to register for the census, each to his own city. A couple historical details that are really difficult, actually, in this section that remind us that um, there's a lot about ancient history we don't know and things we don't understand. So um, Quirinius was governor or legate of Syria for a very short time, about eight to ten years after the story being described in Luke. So that makes this a little bit challenging. He was, he was um, a governor of Syria from A.D. 6 to A.D. 7. Um, and so that's a little late in view of the fact of when Herod, uh, Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. We know this story is taking place before that. So what is Luke getting at when he says this, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria? Well, there's been... A lot of historical debate about that, and we just don't have enough details to totally understand everything. But let me just give you some understanding of the options that people throw out. One is there's some evidence that Quirinius had sort of a broad governing rule, a broad kind of oversight of Syria earlier on, a prior um, rulership 
before the one that we know in 6 or 7. So maybe um, that's what Luke is referring to, uh, not the second one, but the first one. Um, maybe that's what he's talking about. Um, maybe uh, there's a better translation. A lot of scholars say we should take the word first and understand it before. It has that sense in a couple other places in the New Testament. And maybe what Luke is referring to is this was the census before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And here's why that would make sense. It's because in that 6 to 7 AD time period, Quirinius did issue a, a census. And that was when Rome first took direct control, right? Like, okay, the client king thing wasn't working for them. And they tried, you know, after the course of Herod the Great died, they tried several of his sons as client kings, and it just wasn't working. So Quirinius now is directly in charge, no client king, and they had a direct Roman uh, census and taxation that was issued by him, and it led to a, a revolt. In fact, Josephus refers to that almost like it was a watershed moment in the history. And so that census... And that led to that revolt about eight to ten years after Luke chapter 2. That was a big deal in the history. And so maybe Luke is just marking things with, this is a census that took place before Quirinius's well-known census that led to the revolt. In short, we don't really know enough details to know exactly how it all played out. We just know that the census that's being described here happened sometime around you know, 5-6 B.C., and uh, and it was that early census that was part of uh, Augustus's policy to count his empire uh, that was um, executed by Herod the Great. He's the one that carried out the census. And everyone went to register for the census, each to his own city. Again, that raises a few questions. It's because typically the Romans didn't require people to go back to their homeland. But there is evidence that the Romans allowed local people uh, to kind of implement the census in their own way. And if that's the case here, then that would make sense since under Jewish regulation, you needed to register according to where your property had land or your family had land and where your hometown was from. Joseph, Joseph is of the lineage of David um, and his family is then originally from Bethlehem. And so that's why that's the case. So that's probably what's going on here, and that's um, this is a, a census that is being allowed to operate under local policy, but uh, officially under Roman auspices. That's probably what's going on. Now, we're quickly running out of time. We haven't gotten very far in the story, but man, that's a lot of historical details. And even though that's a lot of historical details that really just frames up and sets up the story of uh, what's about to happen, let me just offer just kind of a few things that strike me as we, we wrestle with this. One, God has always done his work in the real world, in the real world of history. That's true throughout the Old Testament. It's true through the New Testament. That God, God's work is not out there in a spiritual realm, uh, divorced from the real world of space and time. God's work takes place here in the real world of space and time. And that's what's going on in Luke chapter 2. In a real world of history, God finally acted. The other thing that strikes me out of this is, um, you know, this whole Caesar Augustus, Herod, Quirinius, and all of that. It's like, 
here you have political rulers carrying out their policy, and God in his magnificent sovereignty is using these, these rulers, unbeknownst to themselves, to achieve his plans, to move his story forward. Uh, also, in, in relationship to that, Caesar Augustus, right? Like this great ruler, you know, promoted as the one who's brought peace to the realm, savior of the, the empire, right? He is proclaimed even as savior and Lord. And yet, and yet in all his pomp and all his power and all of that, um, he, he is really just sort of like, he's just part of this story. He, he's just a bit player in this story whom God uses to achieve his eternal kingdom in sending his son into the world. And, you know, if you look at our world today and you feel like, man, the world is out of control, politicians are off their rocker, what in the world is going on? Never, never doubt that God is sovereign and God is on his throne. And God has always worked in the real world of space and time, even to the point of using pagan rulers to achieve his purposes. So never, never let the fact that the world seems out of control uh, cause you to doubt the sovereignty of God. Again, put yourselves in the shoes of those Jews. When this happened, they had been praying and longing and waiting and suffering confusion and discouragement. Like there have been certain things that made it seem like God had saved them and delivered them from pagan oppression. And then all of a sudden they're back under Roman authority. And it's like, God, where in the world are you in the midst of all this? And in those days, in those days, Caesar issued a decree and God advanced the story forward and God achieved his purposes. And the same is true today. God's still at work even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't look like it, and even when it feels like, man, the world is out of control, God is on his throne. Jesus is risen from the dead. God's story is going forward, and his kingdom will come, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that, my friends, is good news. Good news that's rooted not just in pious hope and pious fiction. It's good news rooted in a story that happened in history, there in Israel in the year 4 or 5 or 6 B.C. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Bible and Life. And next week we will continue through this story, look at more of the details, and continue to bring this story to life so that we really hear the Christmas story in the terms in which it was meant to be heard. I pray that you have a blessed Christmas season and that in the midst of the season you set your eyes firmly on the, the finished work of Jesus, work that happened in history, work that really has uh, brought uh, God's kingdom to bear on this world, and that is good news of great joy for all people. Hey, thanks to those of you who are patrons of the Bible and Life podcast and support this, this podcast over on my Patreon page. Your support means the world to me. Thanks to those of you who donate faithfully and regularly for the through the donate button on my website through World Family Mission. Man, thank you for your support. I, frankly, just in all honesty and all literalness, I couldn't do this without your support. You make this possible, and I appreciate each and every one of you very much. So thank you for all your support uh, through this year and into 2020. 
And if you want to get on board with supporting and help continue this show go forward, help me continue to create the listener's commentary on the New Testament, feel free to swing over to my Patreon page or World Family Mission and donate that way. God bless you guys. Have a great Christmas season, and we will talk again next week.